How's everyone today? Ready to jump into the book of Judges again? Yes. And we are going to see Jephthah yet once again, but for the last time today. And if you thought last week was a challenge for Jephthah, this week is an increasingly difficult challenge for him as well. But just to give us up to speed, because these are very important lessons for us to learn as a Christian in this day and age, um, looking at the stories of the book of Judges. And if you remember back several weeks ago to the life of Gideon, he was a mighty warrior for God. We saw in Hebrews 11 last week that he's considered one of the fathers of the faith that we should emulate and we should example his faith in our lives as a great man of faith. But yet at the same time, Gideon had a major problem in his life that went unaddressed pretty much his entire time with us, and that is his idolatry. He was really quick to fall into idolatry, and it lasted him the entirety of the last of his lives. It wrecked his village. It wrecked his family. It wrecked his sons. It was a challenge for Gideon to get over um, that idolatry that he continually struggled with, although he's still considered an amazing example of faith and an example of godliness to us, even with his flaws. Jephthah comes in right after Gideon, and he starts as that mighty warrior. He is ostracized by his family, kicked out of his family home and his city. Yet Jephthah still has one problem as well. His problem is not idolatry. In fact, he is quite committed to God, but his downfall is this uncertainty about what God has said. He is uncertain about God's truth, about God's word, about God's plan that he's revealed. He, he doesn't have a great knowledge of Scripture. And that lack of knowledge of Scripture gets a lot of people into trouble. In fact, that is the one thing that Satan is known to tempt about. When Satan was in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, and when he was with Jesus in the wilderness in the moment of temptation, Satan's process of attacking the believer is to make them doubt and question, did God really say that? Did God really say that? Did God really say that? Satan knows that there is power in the believer when they attach themselves to the absolute truth of God, and they're uncompromising on that truth. They believe what God says, and they act upon it. Satan knows that if I'm going to trip the believer up, if I'm going to make them sin against God, I've got to get them to question whether or not God has really said this. And so he attacks God's truth. And Jephthah sort of fell into that category, not firm in his foundation of God's word, and he compromised. And last week, it cost him terribly. I think to get this into perspective, in order to help us really understand what's going on in Israel during the time of Judges, we have to think to ourselves, there is no church. There is no temple in which to worship and sacrifice to God. There are no um, synagogues which came in during the Babylonian activity. There was nowhere for the Israelites to go on a Saturday or a Sunday morning and hear God's word being preached. There wasn't. There were priests during that time, but they were, they were kind of in Jerusalem and they weren't doing very much and they were even looking for, out for their own living. They weren't doing what God had called them to do. That revival happens once Samuel gets on the stage hundred or, or probably close to 200 years after the time that we're looking at this morning. They did not have Bible studies to go to. The entirety of their worship and knowledge of God's Word came from their parents. 
and their parents' parents, and their parents' parents, their great-great-great-grandparents would tell them, this is what Moses said. And we have seen time and time again in the book of Judges in particular that the previous generations failed miserably when it came to instructing the next generation and teaching them to have a relationship with God because so far we have seen the cycle that once God delivered them, what did they do? They again did evil in the sight of God and worshipped other gods time and time again until he raised up a judge, brought them victory and brought them safety and security, and then they forgot all about God again and went back into their evil ways, married and intermarried in unbelieving families, and guess what? Every single time it caught them in the end, and they paid the consequence for their compromise. They did not have the privilege that we have today to gather together and worship to gather together and hear his word, to gather and get together and pray, let alone to gather together and have a sacrament. They had none of that. You are so amazingly privileged compared to what the Old Testament saints went through in the book of Judges. You are heads above in knowledge. You are heads above in history. You are heads above in culture that loves God more than it did back in those days. You are heads above where they were at. And if it is easy for us to slip into idolatry and compromising on God's word, imagine how hard it was for them. They were devastated by idolatry and compromising on God's word. The same thing happens today with Jephthah in chapter 12 of Judges. Now we're going to read the first verse and then we're going to get some context. So. Remember, right on the heels of this, the chapter 11, he gains incredible victory against Israel's nemesis at the time, which were the Ammonites, and those were the descendants of Lot. And the Ammonites were ruthless and bitter and enslaved Israel, especially in the northeast part of Israel, which to our area would be everywhere from Fountain all the way down to Dillon Road in our context, all on the east side of 25. And God raised up Jephthah, God gave Jephthah incredible victory and knowledge of war, and he was victorious, and gave God all the credit, although he sacrificed his only daughter because he tried to bargain with God, and it is never good trying to bargain with God. You just say yes or no to God. You don't try to bargain with him. So in comes the victory. I imagine Jephthah is one disappointed about the sacrifice of his daughter by his own hands, but he's also pretty excited that Israel is now free, and in comes verse 1 of chapter 12. The men of Ephraim, which is another tribe of Israel, were called to arms. Okay, what are they called to arms about? And they crossed to Zephon and said to Jephthah, why did you cross over and fight against the Ammonites and did not call us to go with you? So the Ephraimites are upset at Jephthah. Why? You never asked us to go fight. And now we're up in arms. We're ready to go to battle, and the battle's over. What happened? You needed us. We're, we're a very, very large tribe. We're an important tribe. Lots of kings come from our tribe. And you just went to war without us? And so this is their response to that. We will burn down your house over you with fire. What? Israel has just been saved from mortal enemies. There is peace in the land. 
There is a reestablishment of worship to God. Jephthah is an amazing leader as well as a religious leader, a man of faith listed in Hebrews 11, and their complaint is, you went to war and you did not ask us to go to war, so in light of that, we're going to go to your house, burn it over your head, and you're going to die. How about saying, thank you, Jephthah, for taking the Lord's leading and being a mighty man of faith. You are an example to us. Will you be our king and rule over us? Because God has clearly given you ability and talent and persuasion and skill, and you have a heart for him. May we follow you. Instead, they got all offended. You didn't ask me to help. Therefore, I'm going to kill you. Where did that come from? Well, it came from a heart, obviously, that did not love God or love others. It was a heart of sinful pride. How dare Jephthah get the glory, get the honor, get the prestige, get something. And in the whole scheme of things, you ignored me. Of course, we would, in a New Testament time of church, never have that attitude You've ignored me. It's about me. Help me. Do for me. Me, 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 me. We would never have that problem, would we? Especially in a church where it's other focus. We would never think it's not meeting my needs the way I went and met and you're not paying attention to me. That would never happen in a church, right? It happens in the church all the time. You're not meeting my needs. You didn't say hello to me. You didn't do this for me. You didn't ask me. Not to the point where you're going to come down and burn my house, but it happens all the time. We get offended that I was not asked or I'm not that important or I didn't get a chance to volunteer. Because that's what Ephraim is all upset about. I didn't get a chance to volunteer. You ignored me. Let it be said, I will always let you volunteer. If you want to volunteer, just come to me. I will let you volunteer. I will never tell you no, you cannot volunteer. You want to volunteer, we have safety team that needs help. We have lawnmowers that need help. We have hot rod parking that needs help. You can volunteer. You can volunteer in the nursery. You can volunteer in youth. If you have musical skill and ability, you can volunteer and help worship. If you have technical ability, you can come help the worship team with slides and sound. You can volunteer. I'll let you. No need to come to my house, burn it down, and think that I'm ignoring you. You can volunteer. In fact, we're changing the title of the sermon to what? I can volunteer. Say it with me. Not Tim. I can volunteer. Oh, Ephraim needed to learn that lesson, and it didn't. It got offended that they were not considered important in the eyes of Jephthah, and they got angry, upset to the point they wanted to kill a fellow Israelite who brought victory, by God's hand, victory over an enemy. It reminds me some of Romans chapter 12, in which Paul says in Romans 12, kind of how to deal with this, you offended me, You're, I'm not important in your eyes type of mentality, Paul gives us some great ways of dealing with, I got offended, my pride was hurt, I'm, you know, oh, me, me, me. He says this in Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 17. First of all, tells us, repay no one evil for evil. Oh, that is so hard. 
Because that person who cuts me off in traffic without a signal, do you know what my instinct is? If I had a beater car, I know that I would mistakenly hit the gas instead of the brake sometimes. I know that I want to pass them without my signal on. Repay evil for no evil. Don't repay evil in any case. But give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourself. Never ask, act like Ephraim. Never act like your pride has been hurt, you've been slighted, you've been offended. Don't act like that. Don't even entertain that. Instead, leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Paul says God's going to take care. If it's a real offense, Ephraim, if Jephthah really offended you, if it really was attacking you, God's going to take care of it. That person who cuts me off didn't think, oh, there's Tim, let me cut him off in a couple exits. No, no, no. That was, they didn't have any offense against me. They just, that's how they drive. I get it. But if someone truly does offend you, person to person, to person God says, Paul says, Jesus says, his word says, don't take it upon yourself to score a point or to make it even. Now, in our sinful nature, we want to not just be even, but be ahead, pay them back more. They take an eye, we want to take their head. They cut me off, I want to crash their car. I says, no, don't behave like that. If it truly was a sinful event, God says, I'm going to take care of it because we can't read a person's heart. We can't read the person's heart. Did they truly dish me, or was it just simply a mistake? I remember one time, this was in uh, South Carolina. I was in a church, and uh, I was driving somewhere. I don't remember where, but uh, lots of little side roads, and so I took a side road one time differently in order to get home. I did, and um, next Sunday, one of the elders came to me and said, uh, I heard, Tim, that you uh, offended so-and-so. And I said, look, I, first of all, I don't know who so-and-so is, but what did I do? He said, well, you were driving down the street, and he was out there cutting his grass, and you didn't stop to say hello to him. I said, who is it? He said, well, it's someone who used to come here, their church of 50 years. Of course, they hadn't been there in 30 years, but it was their church. Uh, I said, I had no idea who it was. He goes, yeah, you just drove right by him. I thought, how, how far did that hurt get from that person that the elders of the church knew the next week that I have drove down the street and didn't stop and talk to him. I had no idea who it was. I did not purposely drive down that street intending to see him and then ignore him. That was not my intent. I was just driving. How many times have you driven by someone who was cutting the grass and you didn't stop? Pretty much every time, right? Unless they were doing my lawn and I'd stop and say, thank you. But we can take the most mild, insignificant molehill of an issue and turn it into Pike's Peak and destroy an entire relationship because I got offended. 
I wasn't asked. It's not about me. What about me? What about my rights? What about my privileges? What about my knowledge? What about my talents, my skill? Me, 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 me. And God says, if there really was an offense, I'll take care of it. You don't have the right or ability to exact vengeance. Only God does. And Paul continues and says, not only is vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, this is how we're to act instead of that. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you are heaping burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now I'll hand it to Jephthah. Because in a sense, that's exactly what he does in the next few verses. Jephthah, a mighty warrior who has an army at his disposal. Someone comes up and says, I'm offended. I'm going to burn your house down. Our first response is probably to gather the wagons and go after the guy. We don't want our house burned down. We don't want to be killed. But this is how Jephthah answers it in verse 2 back in Judges chapter 12. And Jephthah said to them, I and my people had a great dispute with the Ammonites. And when I called you, you did not save me from their hand. And when I saw that you did not, would not save me, I took my life in my hands, crossed over against the Ammonites, and with the Lord, and the Lord gave them into my hands. Why then have you come up to me this day to fight against me? It's interesting that when the facts are laid straight, the story of Ephraim and the Ephraimites all of a sudden deflate. They got offended over something that Jephthah said, hey, I remember I, I did call you. You didn't come. So I went, and God gave me victory. So what's the fuss about? Why are you even upset? When I asked for help, you wouldn't do it. But now, all of a sudden, you got offended because there was a great victory, and now there's going to be songs written about me, and I'm going to be written in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, and you're not going to be mentioned. Because when I asked for volunteers, you didn't come. So I took it upon myself, and God gave us victory, and it was a sweet victory over horrible enemies, and now we have peace in the land. What is your problem? And so I think <laughs> Jephthah does a great job at diffusing the situation, or at least attempting to diffuse the situation, because if you're reading ahead, you know that the situation is not yet diffused. But Jephthah sets the record straight by telling the facts. It's amazing how valuable and important the facts are. Like when I explained to the elders of that church, I did not drive down that street except by mistake figuring it would get me home, and it did. I had no idea who this person was, but if I see them next time, I will wave and say hi. And they went, oh, okay, that makes sense. Yeah, he's, you know, it's his church, but he hasn't been here in 30 years. We totally get that kind of type. I, I understand. And I was like, the truth settles the matter. And in fact, in Scripture, we're told often that the first person to tell their story often seems right until the next person comes along and shares the facts. And so Ephraim is all up in arms. Jephthah does his best and says, hey, how about we deal with this in a civil manner? Let's set the record straight. Tells the truth. 
Why are you coming up against me? But that wasn't the end. Because in verse 4 through 7, we have the rest of the story, and it kind of reminds me a little bit about Jephthah not understanding God's word from the last chapter, his lack of knowledge that God is the one who enacts vengeance, that God is the one who repays evil for evil, that God is the one who will stand up for his people. He kind of struggles with that again in these next verses. Verse 4 through 7. Then Jephthah gathered all the men of Gilead and fought with Ephraim. And the men of Gilead struck Ephraim because they said, You are fugitives from, of Ephraim, you Gileadites, and uh, in the midst of Ephraim and Manasseh. We may not understand how big of an insult that is. This is the insult the Ephraimite said to Jephthah. And this is what got Jephthah all upset to the point they went to war. This is the insult. This is Jephthah talking to... Uh, no, this is uh, the Ephraimites talking to Jephthah. So this is, this is the slander. This is the, the, the you know... Big event. He said, they said to him, you are fugitives of Ephraim, you Gileadites. You, the mist of Ephraim and Manasseh. You can see how those are fighting words, right? Like right away you are going, oh, you're right, Jephthah. You give it to them. Yeah, I mean, they basically called you out, right? What's happening here? It's really major, though. They're making a slight against his heritage. Remember who Jephthah's mother was? A prostitute. And Ephraimites are saying, you have no part of us. You, you, you kind of are part of us, but you're not really part of us. You're not really one of us. Who knows where you really come from? Oh, that, you're talking about my mother now, Jephthah's thinking. And they're, no, no, no. You can make fun of me all you want, but you make fun of my mother where I come from. Those are fighting words. And so Jephthah and the entire army of the Gileadites, they go to war against Ephraim over those words of questioning the heritage and lineage of Jephthah. Now there's many of us who would say, it's one thing to attack me, I can handle it, but you attack my mother? Mm -mm. No, sir. Those are fighting words. Hotheads will act on that. Hotheads will act on it. Those who have a gentle understanding of how to deal with enemies and how to use your speech with love would look at that as an opportunity to show forgiveness and maturity. Jephthah, unfortunately, didn't respond that way. They went to war and battle. In fact, we're told in verse 5, and the Gileites captured the fords of the Jordan against the Ephraimites, so they just basically cut them off from returning home. And when any of the fugitives of Ephraim said, let me go over, the men of Gilead said to him, are you an Ephraimite? And when they said no, when they said no, they said to him, then say Shibboleth. And he said, Sibboleth, for he could not pronounce it right. And then they seized him and slaughtered him at the fords of the Jordan. And at that time, 42,000 of the Ephraimites fell. So here's the picture. The Ephraimites go cross 
the Jordan River. They go cross 25 out east. They meet up with the Gileites. Jephthah and the Ephraimites have this big discussion about their mother, and they go to battle. The Ephraimites are obviously losing, and so they try to get back home, cross the Jordan River, cross 25, and as they're crossing, the Gileites are standing there going, okay, what's the password? Uh, Sibboleth. No, Shibboleth. See, the Ephraimites, with their dialect, obviously were not able to pronounce the sh sound and could only pronounce the s sound. And so that was the test. Were you really a Gileite? Or were you an Ephraimite? What is your, uh, I just forgot the word. <sighs> dialect, not dialect. Um, <sighs> oh, you know when someone comes from a different place and they have, they speak different. Accent, oh, accent. I thought for sure I didn't have to write that down, but it's the easiest word in the entire passage, accent. Their accent wouldn't allow them to say the shh sound. So that was a test of where they truly were from. And everyone that could not pronounce shibboleth, their head was cut off, killed. 42,000 people killed as they tried to cross the river. Did Jephthah take it personally? Absolutely. Should he have taken it personally? Absolutely not. Now, the word shibboleth or sibboleth just simply means a word that's difficult to pronounce. That's all it is. It has no other meaning than it's a difference of how we pronounce things. And if you've ever met someone that's not from your hometown, you automatically assume, oh, you've got an accent. I can tell. I can tell immediately if someone is from Chicago. If they're from Chicago, I can tell. I can tell immediately if they're from Illinois or Illinois just by how they say the words. If they say, hey, let's go up here and take a Louie, I know exactly what they're talking about. If they go, hey, let, uh, up there you go take a Ricky, I get it. If you go up there and you got a Yui, I know what that means. And so there is a certain language from Chicago that I understand that you may go, how do I put this together and how in the world do you keep saying Chicago? I've never heard that before. It's because you're not from Chicago. But if I want to find out if you're from Chicago, I'm going to ask you, where are you from? And if you say, I am from Chicago, no, not really. Maybe, maybe you moved there or flew in there once, but you're really not from Chicago. I imagine here in Pueblo you have the same thing. I imagine somehow there is some word that you just use in a way that shocks me and I have to learn because I don't want to look like that outsider that just moved from Denver and trying to sneak in and, you know, Denverite uh, Pueblo. But all of us have those little phrases, the little idioms, the accents, the words that clue us in immediately. You're not from around here, are you? I actually do know what it is in Pueblo, and it's not how you pronounce a word. It's the answer to the question, what high school did you graduate from? Is that not the question? And when I was asked that question the very first time in a coffee shop, I was like, dude, do I look 19 years old? What do you mean, do I? Yeah, I do, but you've got no clue where it is, and immediately I realized, ah, that's how I know if someone's from Pueblo, and it's amazing the number of times that I meet someone for the first time now because I know the lingo, I know the language, I know the question to ask. I always ask, well, what high school did you graduate from? And immediately they go, ah, oh, he's from here. And I go, no, I'm not. 
but I do know how to speak your language. I know how to speak high school. Jephthah did not learn that lesson. He immediately, at the beginning of the story, did. He was gracious, focused on truth, and diffused the situation. But when his heritage, his mom, was called into question, he went to battle and war, and 42,000 people died. Verse 7, Jephthah judged Israel six years. Then Jephthah the Gileite died and was buried in his city in Gilead. Let me go right to take home. In Proverbs chapter 16, verse 18, it says, Pride goes before destruction and haughtiness before a fall. Pride, self-importance, arrogance, me, 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 seems to always be followed with terrible consequences. When you put the focus on your needs, your prerogatives, your wishes, your desires to be true, you can take great offense by someone just driving down a street and in your mind they're ignoring you. But in reality, they were just driving down a street. It wasn't to slight you or to hurt you or to offend you. And that offense and that hurt is built up when there is pride and arrogance in your heart. And Proverbs says, don't let that gain a footing. Because when that gains a footing, 42,000 lives could be at stake. And then lastly, in Mark chapter 11, Jesus says, and whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespass. That is how we deal with people offending us. It's forgiveness. And I know you don't want to hear that. I know you want to hear about them getting it back. God says, I'll take care of giving it back. You take care of forgiving. And once you get forgiving down, then we'll deal with the other things. And I don't think we're ever going to get forgiving down. It is super hard but it doesn't mean that's not what we strive for. And if you ever, ever want a lesson in forgiveness, it's right here on this table. This is the biggest, most visible, gracious, forgiving act of all of history. This table, what it represents, represents the sacrifice of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, Him dying on the cross to make forgiveness possible for you to be forgiven your sins. And God says that's how we're supposed to treat one another. Forgive us our debts as we forgive the debts of others. Instead of exacting vengeance, God says love, feed, clothe, give a drink, be kind, be generous, be loving, be forgiving. So as our elders come up and we get ready to partake at the Lord's table, let me pray that if there is some bit of unforgiveness in your heart, that you would rush right now, not just to the Lord's table, but before the throne of God, and ask the Lord to give you a forgiving spirit. And it might be a friend, it might be a relative, it may be someone you've never met, met that you just disagree with so completely that you hate them. 
Let the table remind you of the great love of Christ. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you are a good God to us. You are gracious. You are merciful. You are ever-loving. Your goodness flows over us each and every day. Help us, Lord, to have forgiveness that's quick and flowing from us. Father, don't let pride and arrogance and haughtiness be part of our attitude, part of our mind, part of our past, or part of our future. But, Father, rid us of that me attitude. And, Father, may we be people known for loving you and loving others before ourselves. In Christ's name, all of God's people said, Amen. Amen.